Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, the weekly podcast of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where we discuss the issues that matter most to you occurring up at the legislature. We had a big week this week with the State of the State on Monday, culminating in the announcements of committees and their membership on Thursday. During the State of the State, Governor Abbott announced not only his legislative priorities for this coming session, but also designated five emergency items. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is an emergency item? Well, an emergency item is simply something that can get taken up by the legislature and votes made on that prior to the 60-day moratorium expiring that the Constitution provides. So what were those emergency items? Well, we have five of them. And joining us later on in the podcast will be Chuck DeVore to talk about the last but not least emergency item, election integrity. But let's start off with listing them out. We have expanding rural broadband access, preventing the local defunding of the police, liability protections from COVID-related lawsuits, and bail reform, which I'll talk about a bit later. And so first, expanding rural broadband. I think it surprises nobody that rural areas, when it comes to developing high-speed internet access, tends to be a little bit behind what we'd see in the major cities. Now, why is this important? Well, over the last year, you might have noticed that we've had a bit of a pandemic on our hands. And a lot of the ways that traditional medicine has been usurped, at least in function, has been through our use of telemedicine. Now, telemedicine has exploded across the state. Regulations were eased. And we found that that people were better able to get the help they need, whether it was general practice, whether it was mental health care. We basically lowered the walls in order to get doctors help even if that doctor's not in front of you right now. You might be thinking, well, that makes perfect sense. Why not double down on that rural broadband access? Well, the thing is, as we come to this issue about rights of way and kind of who may actually run you know, telecommunications in that setting. So under current law, telecommunications companies actually have to rent space on the poles, if you will, from electric co-ops or from municipalities. And the electric co-ops and municipalities are statutorily barred from actually providing these particular services. So moving forward, I think this is what we're going to see the discussion break down on is who owns the right to the polls? Are we talking about an easement or a bailment? Are we talking about allowing rural electric co-ops to actually provide broadband services in these areas? This is something that we expect to see developing as as time progresses. Now, a, a more important one is preventing the local defunding of police. Now, we haven't seen any ideas or firm policy discussions on what this actually will mean in practice. Several have been floated already, whether that's the creation of a capital district here in Austin uh, around the capital, including areas that are owned by the state, uh, whether that means having a disannexation plan where people can vote themselves out of their current municipality and say, come under the law enforcement guise of the county, or in some cases, probably the Department of Public Safety as well. So these are one of the issues that is still yet to be ironed out. Obviously, what's the impetus for this? We saw you know, over the summer discussions of Austin defunding their police, uh, other cities as well up in Dallas. You know, things that we here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation were interested in exploring in terms of 
what do you mean when we move these services into other municipal entities? Not let's just cut them off the table entirely. And I think that what under that's what underlines the problem that we see here in Austin. You essentially see a reduction of enforcement capacity in order to supply that money to deal with things in non-traditional, non-law enforcement ways. Well, the problem is if you have an individual in acute mental health crisis, that person is not going to be able to be assuaged by a social worker. That person is not going to be able to brought to a safe resolution by having a housing first room available in North Austin. These are simply instances in which the state has a monopoly on fourth and must be used to actually bring a incident to a resolution. Now, is a violent resolution of that incident preferable? Never. Absolutely never. Is it inevitable sometimes? Sometimes it is. I wouldn't even say oftentimes, but sometimes it is. But And in those sometimes, if you have defunded the police in a manner that reduces enforcement capacity, then we have a problem because that, that capacity cannot just muster instantly in order to take care of this particular issue. So as that progresses, we look forward to seeing more discussion on that, as well as seeing what the appropriate level of policing, however defined, gets meted about in the uh, the legislature. Liability protection from COVID, the 3,000 foot view on this is much with any sort of negligence is we essentially see that would a business be liable if they created a situation negligently or an error in which somebody was somebody caught you know the virus and the problem is now of course being that that question is not really well defined and while we do have certain immunities that exist out there in the civil realm how that would affect this you know basically world changing virus nobody knows so that's something that we're going to be paying a lot of attention to and then we come to bail reform now, bail reform is an issue that's very near and dear to my heart. For I've worked on it for oh, going into th- the third session now. And this all really started back in 2017 and really was thrust into the, the limelight with the execution of Trooper Damon Allen. Now, Damon Allen uh, pulled over DeBrett Black. And when he was walking back to his car, Mr. Black stepped out of his car and assassinated him. But this was able to happen because DeBrett Black was out on bond for assaulting a peace officer for assaulting a public servant. So he actually was out on bond. That bond was set at $15,000. With the help of a bondsman, he was able to pay it at $1,500. He was out on bond for assaulting a public servant, and he went on to murder a public servant. This shows the inherent flaw within our bail system. Our bail system is set based on a person's ability to pay. And so when we factor in dangerousness, we have to modulate that ability to pay in order to detain somebody or to keep somebody dangerous behind bars. The Texas Constitution mandates that you are given an opportunity to meet bail so long as you're not held with the charge of a capital offense or you're not a three-time felon. But other than that, everyone else is given an amount they have an opportunity to meet. The problem, of course, being is that just looking at somebody and just looking at a arrest affidavit, there's no way to tell what this individual's financial situation is. They might be somebody who's incredibly dangerous, but very well to do. They might be someone who's salt of the earth and has, you know, has absolutely nothing that manifests itself as risk to the community, but doesn't have two cents to rub together. In that case, the first person, the dangerous person would be the one getting out and the non-dangerous person would be the one that we're going to have to pay 20 to $40 a day for, depending on what county we're talking about, in order to house that person during the entire pendency of their trial. And so one of the issues and one of the proposals that we've seen 
that we really like is to really use a front end risk assessment. That risk assessment is going to say whether or not this person, statistically speaking, presents a risk of flight or presents a risk of violent reoffense. And those can be taken into consideration by a magistrate when it comes to setting that bail amount. You know, we've seen countless cases. I believe we're up to 91 cases in Harris County over the last 18 months in which individuals on felony bonds, serious, serious bonds, have actually murdered victims while out on bond. And this is something, this is a avoidable and easily remediable expected side effect of our current money bail system. Now, a lot of people interpret this as, oh, well, we should just get rid of cash bail. We should just let the algorithms, just let the computers go ahead and uh, set these bail amounts. And nothing could be further from the truth. This would just be information that is drawn from the individual's criminal history, not the criminal history of folks in that area, not the criminal history of the state entirely, but just that individual's criminal history to give an actuarial assessment of what this person's reoffense probability is. And that gives it to a magistrate and the magistrate discharges his duties as prescribed by the Constitution. And so as that information's in front of them and the judges still have that, that hand on the steering wheel, this still gives you a human check on the situation. States like California and New York both have used fully automated algorithm systems, and it worked out so poorly to the fact where um, New York had to go back and actually revisit how that worked. And so we're going to see a lot more proposals. We have a proposal that had been filed by Senator Joan Huffman that deals with making sure we have the proper identification for folks accused of human trafficking. We had a proposal filed by Senator Paul Betancourt that deals with whether or not somebody, if they are under three or more charges, felony charges, that there is a bare minimum floor set so that you don't have this repeat recognizance bond issue going on. And these are all issues that are going to be discussed, I would say, probably in the not too distant future, simply because the governor has designated this an emergency item. And last but not least, election integrity. And I'm joined today by Vice President of National Initiatives here at the foundation, Chuck DeVore. Chuck, tell us a little about yourself. Well, thank you, Derek. I've lived in uh, Texas now for nine years. I came from California. Don't hold that against me. I was a lawmaker there for six years. I turned out in 2010, ran for the U.S. Senate, got squashed like a bug, and then moved my entire family to the wonderful state of Texas where there is opportunity and freedom, unlike my old home state of California. Well, it sounds like everything has definitely worked out then. So we have you on here to talk about the issue of election integrity. And you've written a lot about this, not only in the past several months, but stretching back about a year or so. Give us a little strategic sample of the actual issue, what kind of the the focal points are, where the pitfalls are, and why this is such an important issue on both the state and national level. So it's important to understand that Texas is one of a little over 30 states that ask for ID when you go to vote in person. Of course, some states, um, it's just a request. Other states, it's more mandatory. Texas is kind of in between. Most people do show their ID. But when you vote by mail, the way you verify that someone is the voter is through a signature match. And uh, Texas has, I think, wisely restricted by mail voting over the years, but we have still seen a huge increase. If you go from 2016 to 2020, the general elections, uh, it's about quintupled. It's gone from a little over 200,000 people voting by mail in 2016, or pardon me, 2012, to 2020. So two two presidential cycles. It's gone from about 200,000 to about 500,000, and now about a million people voted by mail in Texas. And the problem with that, Derek, is that when you vote by mail, the only way they can validate that you're who you say you are 
is by your signature on the carrier envelope. And if the signature matches, that's supposed to be good. And if it doesn't match, it's really up to a committee of people to determine whether or not that signature is valid. And unfortunately, that committee of people generally is evenly divided between the two major parties. But then the election judge is of the party that is the majority party in that county. And so that judge then casts the tiebreaker, the presiding judge. And so you could have, and there's evidence that this may be the case in Texas, you could have a lot of ballots that are cast by mail where the signature really isn't from the voter. And the people who are overseeing it just went ahead and let them through anyway because it advantaged one party or another. And that's really what we have to fix by having updated voter lists, by really being uh, careful and stringent on validating that the people who are using mail are actually who they say they are, they're actually a registered voter, that they haven't moved out of state, that they're not deceased, right? Or they're, they're actually citizens. I mean, is, it, is that too much to ask? Well, I think you bring up a good point, Chuck, about the manifold issues that need to be addressed with legislation. If there was a push to correct some of these issues, would it be a, a state level push or would it be something that is a state level push that fundamentally affects the county? Or might this actually be something that we need to see enacted nationally um, that complements one or the other? So there's different problems in the state of Texas, some that are emerging and becoming more of a problem as people have been pouring more and more money into Texas to try to flip it from red to blue, and and some that are more systemic and have been around for a long time. For example, down in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, it's well known that there's this phenomenon called politicaris or vote harvesters who figure out ways of separating voters from their mail-in ballots and then either help them in air quotes or fill in the ballot for them. And then once it goes in, interestingly enough, you see two things happen. You see one faction that may overwhelmingly allow through ballots that are somewhat suspect, while at the same time rejecting large numbers of ballots from the opposing faction that may be perfectly uh, fine. The, the signature may match. It's just, it just doesn't matter. They'll, they'll accept or reject based on the faction. And they know which faction it is because they can tell by the envelope which politicara was turning in the envelope. So that needs to be addressed with state legislation to really make our elections more uniform in Texas, to enhance the role of the Secretary of State, to get law enforcement more involved when people are committing illegal acts at the wholesale level. I'm less interested in seeing individual voters who, whether purposefully or not, voted inappropriately be punished. That's really not how you solve the problem. You go after the brokers, the wholesale dealers that are dealing in in tens and hundreds and even thousands of votes. That's who you need to go after. Now, nationally, what we're seeing is the opposite, a very troubling issue where the very first bill introduced in Nancy Pelosi's U.S. House of Representatives was House Resolution 1. H.R. 1 would override state elections code in all 50 states and the District of Columbia, and it would prevent, for example, it would outlaw voter ID at the polls. It would prevent states from adequately maintaining their voter lists so that voter lists would, if H.R. 1 passed, would have more dead people on them, more people who moved out of state, more people who aren't citizens, because the states would be limited in how they could maintain those voter lists. It would basically move Texas to the same system that California has in terms of voting. And and that system uh, is basically a good faith system. In other words, you assume that the voter is who they say they are. Uh, You're not going to ask for any ID. And frankly, you're not even going to ask for any accompanying documentation that they were born in the U.S. or naturalized here. California even allows things like pill bottle prescriptions as a way of validating a voter. And that's, by the way, only if they go to vote in person. 
If you sign up to vote online, you don't have to show anything. You can just check both boxes that you don't have a social security number or you don't have a driver's license. They'll register you to vote anyway. And under California law, the very first time you you show up to vote, you're supposed to show ID, which, by the way, can include a pill bottle prescription. But if you never vote in person, then you never have to show ID. So something on the order of 75% of Californians are voting by mail now. Imagine how many people in California are voting who signed up to vote who never showed any identification whatsoever, and then further that identification isn't even checked when they vote by mail. That's the system that Nancy Pelosi's House wants to impose on Texas and the entire nation. H.R. 1, it's bad, really bad. Sounds like they're only getting uh, 50% right on the Reaganite axiom, trust but verify. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. Trust. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, Chuck, I appreciate you joining me here today. For more information on this issue and the other issues we discussed, please go to www.texaspolicy.com slash LAA for this and much more information. We'll catch you next week here on the podcast.